Take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. Jim Rohn. She used to deliver babies, but now she delivers exceptional wellness for women. Welcome to her Brilliant Health Radio, where holistic women's health expert and board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Kieran Dunstan, shares revolutionary insight from leading experts on what you need to know today to treat the root cause of disease, heal, and create the radiant health you've been searching for. Lean in and get ready to experience the bountiful, blissful, and beautiful vitality that you deserve. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Her Brilliant Health Revolution podcast with Dr. Kieran. I'm so grateful that you chose to spend some time with us today. And I'm going to start with the quote that I teased you with for this episode, take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live, which is from Jim Rohn. I absolutely love that quote. And my guest today, Dr. Eric Osansky, let me know that that was one of his favorites too. And I think it's so vital to really take care of your body like it is your greatest temple, because that's what it is. It's the vehicle that you get to go through life in through. And I want to introduce my guest today to you. Thyroid issues are at epidemic levels. You guys probably know this. Many of you listening probably think you have a thyroid problem, but your doctors run some tests and has told you that they are quote unquote normal. And hopefully you've heard me talk about what a fallacy that is. And I tell people that if you think you have a thyroid problem, you probably do. You just haven't had the right information to actually know that that's the issue. And my guest today is really going to help shed some light on this. I'll tell you a little bit about him and then we'll get started. Dr. Eric Osansky is a chiropractor, clinical nutritionist, and a certified functional medicine practitioner who can help you recover from thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. He is the author of Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Moto's Triggers. And welcome, Dr. Eric. Thanks, Dr. Kieran. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to share some great information with your listeners. Yes, I'm excited for you to share your expertise and your journey. I think that all of our journeys, those of us who had our own health challenges that weren't diagnosed or treated properly by mainstream medicine, our journeys are very instructive for other people as to what journey to follow. And so I'd really like to start there with you because your average chiropractor isn't out there teaching about natural treatments for Graves and Hashimoto's uh, thyroid disorders. So what happened for you? So in 2008, I was diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. I initially did not feel like I had hyperthyroidism, but just was the short story, just walking around in a Sam's Club and you know how they have those automated blood pressure machines. And I took my blood pressure, which my blood pressure was fine, but my heart rate, my resting heart rate was elevated, which was unusual. And then so I just, over the next few days, just took it manually, my heart rate, and it was still still on the higher side and went to see a doctor, diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. And I was showing some signs, even though I didn't feel hyper, I was losing weight, but I was also dieting and just doing some detoxifying. So I thought I attributed the weight loss to the diet and, and maybe some of that was due to it. But I lost 42 pounds, which was a, a lot of weight for the short amount of time I was changing my diet. 
But so I was diagnosed with hyperthyroidism and then I saw an endocrinologist and officially diagnosed with Graves' disease. A lot more people are diagnosed with Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition, which commonly we see lower thyroid hormone levels. Graves is the opposite, where it's an autoimmune thyroid condition where you have elevated thyroid hormone levels, depressed TSH levels, and symptoms such as increased resting heart rate, palpitations, weight loss. Uh, not everyone. I, I do work with people who sometimes gain weight with Graves for numerous reasons, but those are some of the more classic symptoms, loose stools increased appetite. And so with my backgrounds, I knew I wanted to get to the underlying cause of the condition and not, I wasn't opposed to conventional treatments, at least the three common treatment methods I give with hyperthyroidism graves is anti-thyroid medication, radioactive iodine, and thyroid surgery. So I definitely wanted to avoid the radioactive iodine thyroid surgery. If I absolutely had to, I would, would have taken the anti-thyroid medication. Um, and many of my patients do take the anti-thyroid meds but I took an herbal approach and I, you know, of course, cleaned up my diet, uh, did things for stress management, did some testing. I know you're a big proponent of saliva testing, so that was one of the tests that I did. And just uh, looked to identify triggers, underlying imbalances, and that was in 2008 that I was diagnosed and I've been in remission since 2009. And since then, I've been helping people not only with hyperthyroidism graves, but also with hypothyroidism Hashimoto's. Awesome. And so I want to ask you, I know everyone is thinking, why did you know not to take one of those three conventional approaches? What was it that you knew or what was it about your personality that caused you to be aware of other options or to be open to other options or to seek out other options? Because the average person listening thinks that their doctor, the MD that they have is means minor deity and that they know everything and they're going to do whatever their doctor tells them. So what was different for you? Well, you know, the main thing is knowing that these treatments weren't doing anything for the underlying cause. And what, what Graves, just like Hashimoto's, these are both immune system conditions, yet all three of those treatments focused on the thyroid. They didn't do anything for the immune system. So it, to me, it definitely didn't make sense to get thyroid surgery, you know, get a thyroidectomy or to get radioactive iodine, which is obliterating the thyroid. To me, that was just crazy. Not to say there's not a time and place, but as a first line of treatment, I definitely wasn't in favor of that. Antithyroid medication, some people definitely need to take antithyroid medication. If the herbal approach I took, which was uh, an herb bugleweed, and I also took an herb motherwort, but if those didn't work, I would have taken the antithyroid medication, even though antithyroid medications such as methimazole, PTU, those are drugs commonly used with hyperthyroidism. They do commonly have side effects. So I was trying to avoid the medication. And again, I was successful in avoiding it, but if I absolutely had to, I wasn't opposed to taking the medication, but definitely the radioactive iodine thyroid surgery to destroy the thyroid gland or to remove the thyroid gland and you know to be put on thyroid hormone and still not addressing the autoimmune component of Graves to me just didn't make sense. Uh, right, and I hear you, and I don't mean to belabor the point, but I think that we who have had this journey from a conventional approach where the protocols are take PTU, methimazole, radioactive iodine, or thyroidectomy, that's the mainstream model of teaching. And so 20 years ago, if someone had said to me, 
oh, why don't we try a natural herbal approach to grave disease? I would have said, you're crazy. There's no such thing. These are the protocols. This is what needs to happen. And I want everyone listening to really get this because there are probably some people maybe listening to my podcast for the first time who have been going to their MD minor deity and they've been doing everything that they've been told their whole life and their health just keeps getting worse and worse and they're in varying levels of unwellness. They're not sick in the hospital, but they're just coping with what's happening. And this concept that there's another way, you know, most people would say, well, why didn't my regular doctor say to me, well, this is another option we could try is doing an herbal approach and clean up your diet. So do you think that that had to do with your chiropractic training in any way? Oh, without question, just having more of an open mind uh, with endocrinologists and just many medical doctors in general, they're just not taught that way in medical school. So when someone brings up, because I have a lot of patients who, who still will see the endocrinologist along with seeing me, and they'll talk to the endocrinologist about changing their diet and you know doing things for stress management and taking certain supplements. And you know most of the time, they don't want to hear anything about it. And they'll flat out tell the, the person that changing your diet is not going to help improving your stress handling skills is not going to help, reducing your right. toxic load. But yeah, it all comes down to the background. So you're, you're okay. correct. My chiropractic background, I was more open-minded and just, uh, and yeah. So, was, and, and also it, I will say this, prior to being diagnosed with Graves, who had successfully got into remission. So I was skeptical. I just knew that the other approach wasn't addressing the cause of the problem. Okay, got it. So being open to possibilities and knowing that there are other options, it really starts with that. So if you're listening, you've got to know that, unfortunately, we doctors don't know everything. And there's a lot that we don't know that actually could help you. So like Dr. Eric is sharing, he was open to the possibility. He was skeptical, but he took the steps. And now he's living proof of what change can occur. And that's actually my story as well. So let's dive a little bit more into Graves' disease because we talk about Hashimoto's a lot because it's way more prevalent. But I do want to touch on Graves' disease. So it's an autoimmune disease where the body is manufacturing antibodies and attacking the thyroid to stimulate it to make more thyroid hormone. Is that what's happening? Correct. So what Graves, there's what's called thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins. That's the most common antibody associated with Graves' disease. And, and exactly what it does, it, it attaches or stimulates the TSH receptors and that causes an excess production of thyroid hormone. And um, sometimes it also affects, the immune system also affects the eyes. So some people with Graves' disease, um, Graves' ophthalmopathy or thyroid eye disease. So yes, that's the mechanism. And you mentioned weight loss was one of your symptoms and high blood pressure. What are some of the other symptoms of Graves' disease? Yeah, so um, actually my blood pressure was fine, but my heart rate was elevated. Okay. Um, and that varies. Some people actually do have high blood pressure with, with hyperthyroidism, but probably, probably I'd say like 50-50, maybe even a little bit less. I'd say maybe a little bit more don't have high blood pressure, but but elevated heart rate is pretty common. Weight loss is common, increased appetite, um, heart palpitations. I did have some tremors and um, sometimes like loose stools or diarrhea. Those are the more common classic symptoms associated with hyperthyroidism graves. How about anxiety? Is that usually a feature? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's a good point. Yes. 
anxiety is, uh, I mean, we see it also with hypothyroidism, which I'm sure you've right. also experienced with people with hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, but yes, anxiety is uh, pretty, pretty common with uh, hyperthyroidism as well. So it's kind of a hypermetabolic state. All systems kind of go, right? Heart's going a little crazy with the heart rate, the blood pressure, anxiety, weight loss, because your body's churning through calories. And you can get that exophthalmos, right? Where your eyes are bulging. And so it's a very hypermetabolic state as opposed to Hashimoto's. So what are some symptoms of Hashimoto's, which typically causes low thyroid function? Yeah, so with Hashimoto's, typically you'll see fatigue, brain fog, increased uh, weight gain, cold hands and feet. Again, you get the slower metabolism, constipation. So again, a a lot of times you'll get the opposite symptoms as with Graves, even though, again, some people with hyperthyroidism will also experience fatigue as well. As I mentioned, some people with hyperthyroidism will gain the the weight, will, will actually gain weight. And some people with Hashimoto's will lose weight, even though it's usually due to other factors. But yeah, those are some of the more common symptoms associated with Hashimoto's. Okay. Let's talk about Hashimoto's for a few minutes because it is at epidemic levels, but I find that it's very underdiagnosed. So if people have the symptoms of low thyroid function, which is way more common than high thyroid function, they're tired, they're gaining weight, they're cold, they're constipated, right? Hypometabolic state, maybe they're depressed, could have some anxiety, and they go to their doctor and the doctor says, okay, we'll run tests and see if your thyroid's low. And I find that about 80% of the women who eventually come to me were told they had no thyroid problem and when they do the right tests and they're read the right way, they actually have one. So can you help people understand why their doctor might be missing that they are low thyroid? Sure. Well, it's important to understand that a lot of people with Hashimoto's have subclinical hypothyroidism. So their labs might be within the lab range, but outside of the optimal range. So like, for example, TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, is what a lot of the medical doctors rely on. Some of them don't even look at the thyroid hormone levels. And it depends on the lab. Every lab is different, but a, a TSH to me, I like to see TSH between one and two. But even if we put that range, the optimal range between one and three, most labs will consider anything less than 4.5. Some labs, it's even five, a TSH of less than five or less than 4.5 as being within normal limits. So if someone is presenting with a TSH of, let's say, 3.5, most medical doctors, most conventional medical doctors won't red flag that as being hypothyroid. And you, you, a lot, many times, they'll just look at a TSH and not the thyroid hormone levels. So they'll see that TSH of 3.5 and, you know, they'll just conclude that everything's okay. And and honestly, even if they looked at the thyroid hormones, again, many times the thyroid hormone levels will still be within the lab reference range. They, again, might be less than optimal, but most medical doctors won't do anything until TSH is elevated outside of the reference range and or the thyroid hormone levels are below the reference range. So if I'm hearing you right, Dr. Eric, you're saying they're doing the wrong test and reading them the wrong way. Is that what I hear? The TSH is, I mean, just doing the TSH alone isn't sufficient. So I, I can't think doing TSH is wrong, but but yeah. correct. They're not doing the looking at thyroid hormones. They're not looking at antibodies 
you know, the thyroid antibodies, thyroid peroxidase and antithyroid globulin antibodies, they really should be digging deeper and not waiting for, I mean, they're pretty much playing, playing the waiting game. Let's wait until the TSH gets out of range. And then once that TSH gets out of range, then we'll treat you. And usually the treatment is with synthetic T4, levothyroxin, which again, has its place. But, you know, again, Hashimoto's is an immune system condition. So even if someone needs to take thyroid hormone replacements, they're doing absolutely nothing for the immune system. But to backtrack, yeah, they're not doing the sufficient testing to determine that if someone does have a thyroid condition, let alone an autoimmune thyroid condition such as Hashimoto's. Some people are listening and they're saying, I know I have a thyroid problem because I've got all the symptoms. And they're going to go back to their doctor and they're going to say, well, I want antibody tests and I want you know, free T3 and free T4, maybe women who went to the Stop the Menopause Madness Summit that we had last, last November, because L. Russ came and she talked about exactly the test to order. And they go to their doctor and they're told, no, you don't need that. Can you help them understand why that is? Why won't their regular doctor do the tests that we've taught them they need? Yeah, I mean, there's a few reasons. One, again, the training, that's what they learn in medical school. And then, you know, unfortunately, insurance, is a big reason too. You know, they they will many times just recommend what they think will be covered by insurance. And you know, if they insurance might not cover the free T3, free T4, and maybe they will. But it's like I said, it's sometimes a combination, just the doctor's biases and habits, and they'll just habit wise just recommend TSH. But insurance definitely plays a role, just trying to do the bare minimum and concern that, well, if insurance isn't going to cover the thyroid hormones or the antibodies, you know, especially if TSH isn't within range. Once TSH is outside of range, then in their minds, there's justification. But, you know, there are functional medicine doc- medical doctors who practice functional medicine who, you know, they'll, and this is straying a bit from your question, but they, you know, they had the same training in medical school, but they had the, op- you know, they were open-minded enough to realize that, you know, the system is broken. You know, we can't just go by what I learned in medical school and we can't just go by what the insurance companies will pay for. So yeah, those are two of the main reasons why most medical doctors will typically just recommend TSH and sometimes due to thyroid hormones, but most of the time won't look at antibodies. We'll be right back after this short message from our sponsor. Hey there, it's Dr. Kieran. I'm just wondering how long you're gonna go with those unbalanced hormones. I mean, you told me during the Stop the Menopause Madness Summit that you couldn't take it anymore. So where have you been? Since the summit, Deb M has already balanced her hormones, gotten to her goal weight, and is looking forward to wearing her bathing suit on the beach this summer. And Carrie, who hadn't been able to lose even five pounds in the past 10 years, has now lost an amazing 15 pounds and is feeling and looking great. Not to mention, she's sleeping better and her mood has improved. Aaron, Ashley, Debsey, and so many more are already enjoying the benefits of having balanced hormones. And I'm wondering if you could use some help finding out your personal hormone levels and knowing exactly what to do to balance your hormones so that you can lose weight, regain energy, balance your moods, feel sexy and confident, look great and master midlife or whatever you want to do. Know that all health begins with balanced hormones. Everything you want in life begins here and nothing good 
ever comes from tolerating hormone imbalances. We're launching the Hormone Balance Mastermind again this July, so don't wait. Space is limited, and it will be months before we run this program again. Go to www.midlifemetabolisminstitute.com to apply for the program or get on the early bird wait list so that as soon as registration opens, you can be the first to apply and secure your spot. If you've had enough and you want to find out how good life can be once your hormones are balanced, I know I'll see you there. Talk to you soon. And we're back. I wish I could say that we doctors who have kind of seen the light, become enlightened and woken up to the truth about health and a root cause resolution approach came to it because we were so open-minded and we were just doing the research and we discovered this better way. But most of us got bashed against the rocks like a ship in a storm with our own health or we had a family member, a loved one, who had health problems, who got bashed against the rocks like a ship in a storm. So it's through pain that we became teachable. I always say that we physicians really have something that's not a great quality, which is contempt prior to investigation. If I didn't learn it in medical school and I didn't learn it from my residency or my journals, then it's not a thing. And everything I learned about healing people and helping them become optimally healthy, I learned outside of my medical training, I learned elsewhere. So let's dive into, we've identified that Graves and Hashimoto's are both autoimmune conditions where the immune system is attacking the thyroid. So that's your own military that's designed to protect you against outside invasion from abnormal bacteria, viruses, parasites, all these things. It's turning on you and attacking you, right? So think about it. It's like us sending our Air Force out into the air to bomb us. It's like us sending out our battleships into the ocean to bomb the United States in our country. It's like us bombing ourselves and hurting ourselves. So why does this happen? Sure, well, there's something called the triad of autoimmunity. So with the triad, the three factors, so one is genetics. There is a genetic predisposition for autoimmune conditions such as Graves and Hashimoto's. And of course, we can't change genetics. We can't change the genes. We can change the expression of genes. We can do that through those other two factors, which in, uh, trigger. so the second component would be one or more environmental triggers. And then that third factor is an increase in intestinal permeability, also known as a leaky gut. So what happens is if just because someone has a genetic predisposition for Graves or Hashimoto's or a different autoimmune condition such as rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis, it doesn't mean that they will develop that condition. But if they have that genetic predisposition and they're exposed to one or more environmental triggers in the presence of that increase in intestinal permeability, then there is that increased risk of them developing autoimmunity. And as far as like what are some of the common triggers, there's, you know, so there's four main categories of triggers I discuss, and that's um, food. So food such food allergens such as gluten, dairy, stress is another common trigger, and then infections, chemicals, you know, so those are the triggers. And then, you know, a lot of factors can cause uh, increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut. Again, some of the same factors I just mentioned. So, 
you know, gluten potentially, certain chemicals such as glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup. And so again, a, a lot of people are, we live in a toxic world. So that's a lot has changed obviously over the last few decades. And that's, I think is also a big factor in our, you know, I mean, I, I don't think it is a big factor in our environment. You know, the food we eat, the, you know, the chemicals we use, so those are the reasons why we see such a higher prevalence of these autoimmune conditions. Okay, got it. So three factors contributing, genetics, and then some type of inciting event or exposure, and then leaky gut. So let's talk a little bit more about this. Genetics is really what percentage? Because I think people's perception of how much of a role genetics plays is way out of proportion. They say, oh, my mother had a hysterectomy at 40, so I need a hysterectomy at 40, and that's my genetics. So what's really the true input of genetics into autoimmune conditions? Is it 5 10%, 50 80 Where does it lie? Yeah, it's definitely on the lower side. So I don't know the exact percentage, but I would say you know, like five, 10%, you know, as far right. as really playing, you know, because again, you could have the genetics, even uh, twin studies, they've had twin studies, identical twins, where one developed an autoimmune condition and the other didn't. And again, the genetics are identical with identical twins. So that proves that environment is a greater factor. So I would say definitely on the lower side when it comes to genetics. Okay, got it. And then leaky gut, we have talked about it a little bit on the show, but for anyone who maybe this is your first episode, can you explain br briefly what that is? Yeah, so that's a compromise in the intestinal barrier. So you have um, cells of the small intestine known as the enterocytes. And um, sometimes I, I like just show it like the, the fingers, you know, think about the fingers on your hand as like the cells of the small intestine. They, they should be close and tight together and not allow anything to pass through into the bloodstream. And for, again, numerous reasons, you know, these uh, become compromised. And then, you know, the spaces in between the cells allow, you know, food proteins to pass through, infections. And, um, and again, so they compromise the intestinal barrier. And that, in a nutshell, is what a, what a leaky gut is. Yeah, I like that analogy with the hands. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, your gut cells are supposed to be nestled together like sardines in a can. I love sardines, they're so healthy for you. So they're like, if you open the can and the sardines aren't touching each other, you'd say, hey, I got chipped. I didn't get enough sardines in the can. What's well, a good sardine can? You got all the fish. They're actually just right up against each other. So that's real important. And how would someone know they have leaky gut? It's a good question. So there is testing. And a number of years ago, I did testing regularly. There's, you know, lactulose mannitol test, which is a urine test. I used to use, I don't know if you're familiar with Cyrix Labs. They have their ray number two, um, their intestinal permeability test. And so there is testing. There's also a, a zonulin you could do with some comprehensive stool panels, look at zonulin. But when I did the testing, I noticed that most people were positive. And then honestly, even when someone was negative, I would question, is this truly, you know, negative results? It depends on the person. But, you know, so rather than have the person spend more money on leaky gut testing, I honestly just assume that people have a leaky gut and, you know, just do things to help improve the gut health, which I think everybody should be doing. Of course, try to do as much through diet, eat an anti-inflammatory diet, and, uh, you know, just try to minimize exposure to things like glyphosate, antibiotics, things that could affect the, 
the gut barrier and also cause dysbiosis, which is an imbalance in the gut flora. I can't say, I, even though it is an option to do leaky gut testing, some of it, there is also questions about the accuracy. You know, like if I see a zonulin negative on a comprehensive stool test, I can't say that I would rule out a leaky gut based on that. So, uh, and same thing even with the other testing. So, so yeah, I just don't do the leaky gut test. I assume someone has a leaky gut. And then of course, like the next question is, well, how do I know then if I, if you're assuming I have a leaky gut, how do I know, how do I know that the leaky gut has been healed? And again, that was one advantage of doing testing is that you could do a pretest and then you could test later on and that's still an option. But of course, as long as the person is progressing, their symptoms are improving and eventually hopefully completely resolving and uh, the blood tests are improving and eventually normalizing any other tests like saliva testing that you, or, you know, if you do a comprehensive stool panel and you find, you know, a certain trigger like H. pylori, you know, hopefully you, you'll retest that and find that removed. So, so again, there's, it's not as easy as just doing a test and showing that you have negative tests for leaky gut. But like I said, that doesn't always rule out a leaky gut anyway. So I look at these other factors. Do you think it's safe to say that anyone who has autoimmune thyroiditis like Graves or Hashimoto's has a leaky gut till proven otherwise? According to the triad, yes. The triad is yeah. still a theory, but yes, according to that triad of autoimmunity, that is correct. That that is correct. Until okay. proven otherwise, we assume that that person has a leaky gut. Right. So I'm with you on that. The tests for zonulin and the other things you mentioned are plus minus. So if you have autoimmunity, I'd say assume you have a leaky gut. And then let's talk a little bit about the exposure. Can, can, can I say one other Absolutely. thing also that's important is the lack of symptoms, the lack of digestive symptoms don't rule out a leaky gut too. I thought it was important to mention that because I'm sure there's some listening and like, I know I don't have a leaky gut because I feel great. I have regular bowel movements. So there's no way I have a leaky gut. And it's great when someone, you know, feels like their gut is optimal, but the lack of symptoms doesn't rule out a leaky gut. I think that's so important, Dr. Eric. I'm going to just emphasize that, that so many people say, oh, I don't have a gut problem. I have no symptoms. And Unfortunately, I say the people who have a gut problem are the lucky ones because they know there's a problem, their gut is talking to them and they know it needs to be addressed. The ones who don't have any symptoms think they're a-okay. And one of the tests I love to do to kind of help people see that they might have a gut problem is, I don't know if you use these at all, but I'll have them do a complete blood count and I look at the monocyte and eosinophil percentages. Those are specific types of white blood cells for everyone mm -hmm. listening. Yep. And I'll have them, if they're elevated, like your monocyte should really only be one to 2% and your eosinophils are like 1%. So if they're above that, most times it's coming from gut dysfunction. Is that something you've ever used? Yeah, especially with the eosinophils. Like if the eosinophils are elevated, it, could, it might relate to allergies, but sometimes it could relate to parasites of someone, I think it was a week or two ago, someone's eosinophils was like a 14. Ooh. And um, so I was pretty confident that they had a parasite issue going on. Right. That's key. And pretty much though, if you have autoimmune disease, you've got gut dysfunction, you must heal that to get the autoimmune disease handled. And then you talked about exposures and environment and inciting events. And you mentioned wheat, gluten, and glyphosate. So can you talk a little bit about those allergens or antigens rather, and any other sources of food 
problems that could be inciting events for autoimmune disease? Sure. So, and there is controversy. I mean, there's always controversy. It seems like everything is <laughs> is uh, controversial, but. But yeah, so wheat, so gluten found in, in wheat, rye, barley, and the, the problem with gluten, it can't be completely digested. And, you know, so again, it could potentially cause a leaky gut, but there's also some evidence that it could potentially also be maybe a direct trigger for thyroid or autoimmunity as well, maybe, maybe even other autoimmune conditions. Obviously, when we think about gluten, a lot of people think about celiac disease. We know that is the trigger for celiac but could also play a role with other autoimmune conditions. And then, you know, so that there's, you know, dairy is a common allergen. And again, there's some evidence that dairy could be a potential trigger. Corn as well in the literature. There's other foods that might be, but again, I haven't seen in the research. Um, salt, so I do recommend sea salt to my patients, but there also is evidence that too much sodium chloride could also increase Th17 cells, which are associated with autoimmunity. So you also do you do want to be careful with the salt and you know with the glyphosate. You know you mentioned the glyphosate. So glyphosate again, the active ingredient in herbicide Roundup. And some people wonder if the main problem, like if you eat whole wheat bread and if you have a react negative reaction, is the problem with the wheat or is it with the glyphosate? Because glyphosate is also sprayed on wheat crops as well. And there are people who will travel to a different country and they might have problems eating wheat in the United States, but they might go somewhere else and have no problems eating the food. So some suspect, is it really the gluten or is it the glyphosate? And admittedly, there is controversy, but I would still say to try to avoid both, especially when healing. When healing, I would say, you know, avoid, you know, try to go gluten-free. And then glyphosate, it's, it is difficult because even some organic foods might have some glyphosate. And, you know, there's really no way of knowing for certain. So just try to eat organic as much as you can. Try to, you know, avoid non-organic foods. There, there are some foods that are glyphosate certified now, but not a whole lot. But if you're eating whole healthy foods, you know, plenty of organic fruits, vegetables. If you eat meat, try to eat organic. Because again, the feed, even if you, you know, the feed that they, you know, like non-organic, you know, beef and chicken, you got to think about what are they feeding the animals. So yeah, you, you want to try to be as organic as possible. And that at least will minimize the glyphosate exposure. And then again, the gluten, the dairy. I tell, you know, nobody wants to be on a strict diet and everybody is different, of course. So there's no diet that fits everyone perfectly. But I would say number one is to eat an anti-inflammatory diet, you know, consisting of mostly whole foods, a good variety of vegetables. But then, yeah, I would say also avoid these common allergens. So gluten, dairy, corn, I would put soy in that category as well, even though like fermented, organic fermented soy, there are health benefits, but, you know, soy also, you know, has some negative potential negative effects as well. So those are, you know, definitely I would recommend to avoid those foods. We could go deeper into this, but just making those changes alone could have a dramatic impact in one's health. Yes, and, and it is a very vast topic that we don't have time to go into in detail today, but I know everybody listening, somebody's thinking, you said that in organic food, there could be glyphosate. Can you help them understand why that is? Yeah, just, I mean, a big reason is just if you have like an organic farm, there's unfortunately not all the herbicides, pesticides will stay in, you know, the non-organic farm. So there's, you know, like if you have an organic farm 
and not too far away. Even, you know, I mean, honestly, even if it is far away, there's drift where, you know, it could drift like hundreds of miles. But in a situation where there's you know, a lot of farmland and there's, you know, some organic farms and then there's non-organic farms, unfortunately, some of the pesticides and herbicides used on the non-organic farms will drift to the organic farms. So, so that's one of the big reasons that you can't completely escape these chemicals, which is, is sad. You know, of course, you could try to do as much. You could have your own, some people could have their own home garden. And if you do, you could do urinary testing for glyphosate. And I don't do a lot of that. I, I have done it on my own. I've seen some patients, but I have not seen so far in the few tests I've seen, to be honest, again, it's not like I've seen hundreds of tests, but I haven't seen anybody with a negative glyphosate. And I don't think I will see anybody with a negative glyphosate. You just, of course, want it to be on the lower side and not not on the higher side. Yeah, I think it don't, a lot of people don't realize that these pesticides are now, they're in our air, they're in our soil, they're in our water, they're everywhere. Yeah. And this is why you want a good water filter, but you have to look at, you know, when you're eating livestock, that that livestock was fed water. And so that water ha has potentially contaminants in it too. Yeah. So a lot of that's not regulated, even if it's organic. So we really are living in this toxic environment. So it's not if you're toxic, it's how much toxicity do you have and what are you doing to avoid it and get it out of you. And again, like you said, Dr. Eric, we can talk about this for a long, long time. You have some amazing resources for people. You have the Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves Disease, and you have your other book, Hashimoto's Triggers. You have a robust Facebook community that I'm getting ready to go on with you as a guest in a few minutes. And I do wanna just share another quote that you offered earlier when we were talking that I love as well, that the first wealth is health by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And really, what does that mean to you? And, and how does that impact how you help clients navigate their health journey? Yeah, well, a lot of people, when we think of wealth, we think of money, you know, and while it's, you know, nice to have have money, it's also it's more important to, to have health. I mean, health is always should be a priority over money. Now, when we're younger, I know when I was you know, a teenager, young adult, I didn't think that way. I didn't prioritize my health over, you know, making money. But, uh, you know, as you get older, and then, of course, once, especially when we get these health conditions, you know, ourselves, and we realize, you know, how important our health is. So, so that's what I try to preach to patients. It's uh, just, obviously, you want to just to say that first quote was also related to, to health to take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. You know, you need to prioritize your health and most people listening to this understand this, but unfortunately, just as a whole, a lot of us don't, you know, as a society, and we don't really truly appreciate our health until we, you know, until we develop a health condition. Yeah, it's so true. But really recognizing that your health is your greatest wealth is vital to your wellness and your vitality and your survival. Thank you so much, Dr. Eric, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and expertise with us. I know you have a gift for everyone that's gonna give them even more information. It's the Graves Disease and Hashimoto's Checklist. We will have the link in the show notes. Do you wanna tell them a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is the Graves Disease and Hashimoto's Triggers Action Points Checklist. So we spoke a little bit about triggers during this episode here. And so that, you know, will expand on it to help you do more things to try to find and remove your triggers associated with, you know, whether you have Graves or Hashimoto's or really 
even if you have a different autoimmune condition, even though it's focused, that, that my focus is on Graves and Hashimoto's, but even if you have a different type of autoimmune condition, this action points checklist can help as well. Awesome, thank you so much for that amazing resource. Thank you for the work you're doing to help people get to the root cause and resolve it of their health problems so that they can not only survive, but thrive in life. It is so needed. And thank you for taking a stand for the truth about health and really doing your part. It's so much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Karen. I appreciate you having me. And again, hope your listeners learned a lot. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and send it to someone who would benefit from it. If you love the show and really want to support it, please go to iTunes, write a review and subscribe. This helps other women find us so that they too can heal and enjoy brilliant health. I've got a gift for you. If you take a screenshot of your review, Post it on your social media and tag me. I'll send you a special surprise right to your inbox. Thank you so much for joining me. And remember, healing and getting optimally healthy isn't magic, it's science.